All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. We are going to be looking at the entire chapter of Acts 22 in this recording. So Acts 22, 1 through 30. And we're going to set that in context here up front. But first, just a little bit of a, an introduction to what this chapter is. Uh, this chapter is Paul sharing his testimony to the hostile, angry crowd of Jews there in the temple in Jerusalem. It's about the year 57 or 58. And what that means is, is this chapter is a retelling of Paul's conversion that was first told from Luke's perspective as the storyteller in Acts chapter 9. And it's been about 23 or 24 years since those events happened. So Luke first tells Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Here in Acts 22, Paul recounts his conversion. And then Paul is going to recount his conversion for a third time in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 26. And this is fascinating because... Uh, Luke could have just summarized, right? Luke could have just said, and Paul shared his conversion story and how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and Ananias came and baptized him. He could have just summarized it in just a sentence or two, but he doesn't. He has Paul recount the whole story. And then in just a few chapters, he'll have Paul recount the story again. And this tells us that Paul's conversion is really important to Luke's The story Luke is telling, that he's willing to give that much pen and paper, that much ink, and that much space to this story that many times, reminds us of how central Paul's character is to the story Luke is telling, and how important Paul's conversion is to Paul's character and thus the story. And so we get here Paul retelling his conversion. Now, to put it in its context, just remember where we're at. Paul has wrapped up his third journey. He's come to Jerusalem. He uh, has met with the Jerusalem leadership. He's delivered the collection, the offering, uh, with his team to them. Uh, They have gratefully and gladly received it. They've heard his recounts of ministry. And then they have some advice for Paul because of the Jewish nationalism that is at a tide swell at this point of time in history, uh, because some of the false reports about Paul that are being circulated in and around Jerusalem, and thus the Jewish believers are beginning to view Paul with some suspicion. And so the Jerusalem leadership has recommended that Paul join four of their own in a vow that will culminate in a sacrifice, and Paul will pay the expense for their offerings and their sacrifices, and Paul joins in in that. Well, somewhere in the midst of all that, near the time when the vow is coming to a completion, some Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, where Paul spent so much time and was well known, see Paul in the temple, and they... Uh, immediately react and get the entire crowd of Jewish worshipers and Jewish pilgrims there for Pentecost all worked up in the temple. This is what they say, Acts 21. They say, men of Israel, help. This is the man who instructs everyone everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place, meaning the temple. And besides that, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defied this holy place. And Uh, They accused him of bringing Greeks in the temple because they had seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him and recognized him. And they just assumed Paul was such a renegade that surely he must have just brought a Gentile into the temple. And so the, the crowd in the temple gets all worked up. 
And that leads to mob violence against Paul in the temple. The Roman military officers see it and they report it to the commander. The commander sends in two centurions and their forces. So several hundred uh, Roman troops are sent into the temple. They, they take Paul from the Jews and the Jews are angry, so angry that the Romans are actually having to carry Paul up the stairs into the Roman military barracks. On those stairs, Paul asks the commander if he can speak to the Jews. Eventually, the commander gives him permission to do so, and that's where chapter 22 picks up. Chapter 22 is Paul speaking to the Jews, these hostile, angry Jews, there as he's on the, the stairs leading out of the temple and into the Roman military barracks. And so we pick up with Paul having silenced the crowd and beginning to speak to them. And he does so in either Hebrew or Aramaic. The word translated Hebrew here is could refer to either Hebrew itself or Aramaic. And Aramaic was the everyday speech of the Jews there in Jerusalem. And so he says this, brothers and fathers, this is Acts 22.1, brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, so either Hebrew or Aramaic, they became even more quiet. So now there's a great hush over the crowd. And Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And so Paul begins his defense, his speech to them, by recounting his strict Jewish upbringing. And we know he was, as he says here, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. We've mentioned that earlier and where that's at, that's uh, all the way north and around the corner from Antioch. So it's the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean area. So Paul says he was born there, but brought up in this city, meaning at some point he moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem and was nurtured and raised and reared in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly when that happened. So we don't know how old he was when he moved to Jerusalem. Uh, one of the confusing things in uh, studying the life of Paul is it seems as if Paul never had any like first-person, first-hand interactions with Jesus. And so if he was brought up in Jerusalem, then perhaps he left Jerusalem before Jesus started his ministry and was in, in and out of Jerusalem quite a bit. There's just questions we don't know. But at some point, Paul moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem, he says, and he was brought up here in Jerusalem. And not only that, he was educated under Gamaliel. We've talked about Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, how he was like the one of the outstanding kind of premier rabbis of the day. And so if you go back and listen to the recording about uh, Acts chapter 5, you'll hear a little bit more about Gamaliel there. But he is, a, he is like the, the chief rabbi of the day. Paul got to study under him in rabbi school. And so his formal official rabbi training was under Rabbi Gamaliel. And he was brought up, he says, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all today. So he begins his speech with his Jewish credentials and his strict Jewish upbringing. 
to identify with the crowd and help them realize, look, I get where you're coming from. And I was brought up and some of the people there in the crowd may have even known him back in the day. It's only been 23 or 24 years. And some of those people, uh, who are now here in the temple with him, they're leaders. They would have known Paul. They would have known his reputation, right? They can, they can testify. No, that's true, right? And so he, he recounts that. Then what he does is he goes into how his initial reaction to uh, Christianity, to the disciples of Jesus, was similar to theirs, how he was hostile to them. Look at verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting people, both men and women, into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of of the elders can testify. From them I received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And so he recounts his own uh, zeal for God, as he mentioned in verse 3, led to his hostility for the followers of Jesus and so he gets where they're coming from. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul links his zeal to his persecution. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, Paul links the actions he describes here in his speech, this arresting Christians and even going to Damascus and persecuting Christians, he links those actions in 1 Timothy 1 to him being viewing himself as the chief of all sinners. And the reason he calls himself that there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is because of what he did and how he persecuted the church. And so he recounts that, like, I, I understand your hostility. In fact, the the council of elders, the high priest himself, he can testify that, uh, that I did this and how I asked for letters. And so he identifies with the crowd and their hostility. He gets where they're coming from. And then what he begins to do in verse 6 is narrate his conversion. Here's what happened. And he tells what happened as he was on his way to Damascus and how he met Jesus on the Damascus road. It's the same story that's told in Acts chapter 9. But here it's told from Paul's perspective. And so there's a few details that are different because it's Paul's perspective and Paul's perspective for this moment here in the Jerusalem temple. So he adds a few things. This is what he says, verse 6. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus at about noon. That's a detail that we didn't get in Acts chapter 9, that it was about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Now, remember, there are people in the audience listening to Paul tell this story who uh, who heard Jesus teach. They saw Jesus in the temple. They were there when he was crucified, right? Like it's this is an ancient history for them. This is recent history, and there are eyewitnesses, even though they're hostile, there are hostile eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and teaching and ministry in the crowd. And so when they hear Jesus the Nazarene, they they can picture him. They can see his face. They, They know him, right? And so, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And Paul says in verse 9, And those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. In Acts chapter 9, verse 7, uh, Luke, telling the story there, notes that they heard the voice. 
Paul adds the nuance here that though they heard the voice, they didn't understand it as a voice. They didn't understand what he was saying. They heard it as a sound. You, you get this same sort of thing in John chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, where God speaks to Jesus from heaven, but the crowd is mixed, saying, oh, an angel has spoken to him. Others are saying, no, it just thundered, right? Like They can tell something's happening, but they don't understand what's being said. And that seems to be what happened with uh, those who were with Paul when Jesus appeared to him. They hear the sound from heaven. They see Paul speaking back to it so they can surmise that it's a voice, but they don't understand uh, what the voice is saying. And so the, they hear it. They don't understand it. Verse 10, Paul goes on telling his testimony and says, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told about everything that has been appointed for you to do. So you're going to go into Damascus, you're going to get instructions, and there's things that I have for you to do. But, Paul says in verse 11, since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, and he's now blind, I came into Damascus being led by the hand of those who are with me. So he has to be led by the people that are traveling with him. Then he continues on telling the story about Ananias and his commission and how that went down. And again, we get a few extra details, a little more kind of detailed account because this is Paul's firsthand account. He says, now a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there. And so Paul, because he's speaking to some hostile Jews, wants him to know that there's this man named Ananias in Damascus, and he had a good reputation, even by the Jews there in Damascus, even though he was a follower of Jesus. Paul doesn't add that detail here, but we know that from Acts 9. He still was well spoken of by the Jews who lived in Damascus. And so Ananias, verse 13, came to me, and standing nearby, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And we know from uh, Acts 9, that when he said that, he laid his hands on Paul, and Paul received his sight. And so he comes near to him, lays his hands on him. Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I looked up at him, and Paul could now see who was speaking to him. And Ananias, verse 14, said to him, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a message from his mouth. So God has chosen you to be an eyewitness of Jesus and to hear directly from him. And then verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And we've noted throughout the book of Acts how witness is used by Luke in both Luke and Acts, but particularly here in Acts. Witness is used for an eyewitness, somebody who actually saw Jesus and heard Jesus. And that's now happened to Paul. He's seen Jesus, he's heard Jesus, and thus he can be an eyewitness for Jesus of what he's seen and heard. Then Ananias says in verse 16, a really important sentence for understanding Paul's experience, but also Paul's theology of baptism. It, it's shaped by what happened to him. Ananias says to Paul, now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so uh, Ananias instructs Paul immediately to be baptized, uh, to pledge his faith to Jesus, to wash away his sins, notice that, and call on his name. So this act of being baptized would be an expression of Paul's faith in Jesus and his commitment to him as a Lord and Messiah. And it would be the way he's going to demonstrate that faith by calling on his name. And so uh, 
Saul does. He gets up. We know from Acts chapter 9, he, he does. He gets up and he's baptized as a way of demonstrating his faith in Jesus and washing away his sins. Well, in the Acts 9 account, at that point, Luke goes on to tell us how Paul immediately begins preaching Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus and going about preaching Jesus in and around Damascus and how then that leads to ultimately a, an attempt on Paul's life and he has to sneak out of the city uh, through a window in the wall in the middle of the night and then he returns back to Jerusalem. Here in this account, since Paul is in Jerusalem and he's focused on them, he fast forwards to that moment when he returns to Jerusalem and what happened while he was in Jerusalem. And again, we know from Acts 9 that there was, after a couple weeks, a death plot on Paul's uh, life in the city of Jerusalem and so Paul had to be uh, escorted out of and flee Jerusalem as well. Well, here we get a few more details about how Paul knew there was going to be a death plot on his life and what led to him leaving the city. Paul says this in Acts twenty-two seventeen. He says, and it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. So this is three years after his baptism. We've fast forwarded a good chunk of time here. So it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple uh, this is the, the year probably 37, maybe 38, right? Somewhere in there, Paul's back in Jerusalem and he's at the hour of prayer and he's praying in the temple there in Jerusalem. Paul's been a believer at this point for about three years. And so as he's praying in the temple, he says that I fell into a trance and I saw him, that would be the Lord, saying to me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing nearby and approving, watching over the cloaks of those who were killing me. And so Saul says his initial response to Jesus telling him to leave Jerusalem because they're actually going to try to harm him is, but Lord, they know that that wouldn't make any sense because they know that the only way I'd be promoting this is, is if my story were true because I used to be such a violent uh, opponent of yours. And he recounts his persecution of Christians in the synagogues. He even goes clear back to the stoning of Stephen and how that was kind of the catalyst for persecution. And so Paul's like, no, they should know that the only reason I am promoting you is because my story of seeing you on the Damascus Road is true. But the Lord knows, no, that's not quite accurate. They're still going to be hostile to you. So verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, that's all it took for the crowd who listened to this moment, but they were hostile. They didn't trust Paul. They've been told he brought Gentiles into the temple, right? Remember, there's this groundswell of Jewish nationalism that's reaching fever pitch and is going to, in just a few short years, lead to the Jewish revolt. And so they hear the mention of go to the Gentiles, and it just, in their mind, confirms all the bad things that uh, they've heard about. Saul or Paul. And so verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a man from the earth, for he should not even be allowed to, to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered that he be brought into the barracks, saying that he was to be interrogated by flogging so that he would find out the reason why they were shouting uh, against him that way. 
And so once they hear Paul mention the Gentiles, they immediately erupt again in hostility and violence. At this point now, they're taking off their cloaks as a demonstration of they want to stone him, right? They're getting ready for action. They're throwing dust into the air, sort of as that visible demonstration of uh, this man is unclean and needs to be done away with. Um, The commander doesn't know what's going on because... Saul is speaking to them either in Hebrew or Aramaic, which he doesn't know. So he hasn't understood anything Paul has said. All he's knows is there's this great hush. And then all of a sudden Paul said something and everybody got angry again. And so he wants to find out what in the world's going on. So he orders Paul to be brought back into the fortress of Antonia, the barracks, and be interrogated by flogging. In other words, they're going to stretch Paul out and they're going to whip him. And the instrument that was typically used for flogging was a short whip with multiple leather strands, typically with some sort of like lead balls, you know, into the end of the strands, sometimes bone, sometimes glass, just to add to extra pain and damage and destruction to the flesh on the back. And so they wanted to interrogate Paul by flogging to figure out why are they so hostile to him? What has he done? So they get Paul into the barracks, they get him to the place for flogging, um, and then at that moment, Paul has a flair for the dramatic apparently, in this moment, at that point, Paul brings up his Roman citizenship. Look at verse 25. But when they stretched him out with straps, so they get Paul all stretched out, like maybe there's a hook in the ceiling and they stretch him out from that, or there's a tall post with a hook at the top. They're going to stretch him out. In other other words, they want to get the skin on the back nice and tight. So when they whip him, it'll do more damage. That's the idea. So they get Paul all stretched out, all tied up. And finally, in that moment, at the last minute, Paul says to the centurion who's standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? It's a rhetorical question to which Paul knows the answer. Indeed, it is not legal. Indeed, it is illegal. And it came with severe consequences. So to interrogate a by flogging a Roman citizen is completely contrary to the law. And Paul knows this. And so at this moment, after getting them all strapped out, Paul brings this up because once again, now he has some leverage and the upper hand. Well, when the centurion heard this, he immediately reported to the commander, verse 26, and told him saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. Well, the commander came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The The commander then wants to kind of play, let's show status. And so he asked Paul if he's a Roman citizen. Paul says, indeed I am. So now the commander wants to know, well, the commander's a citizen and Paul's a citizen. And the commander is the highest Roman military officer in Jerusalem. So now he wants to kind of compare status or rank with Paul's citizenship. So look at verse 28. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money, which technically was not supposed to happen, but practically it did happen. And there were certain loopholes that you could get through in order for this to happen. So the commander, who we know whose name is Claudius Lysias, and his name Claudius may be in honor of the emperor Claudius, under whose reign he perhaps bought his citizenship. And we actually know there was a there was more of that that went on during Claudius's reign than at other times. So that's possible. So he bought his citizenship and he says it cost him a lot of money to do it. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. 
In other words, Paul's citizenship is higher, and thus Paul is not a social inferior to Claudius Lysias. Although Claudius Lysias, the commander, is the highest ranking military officer in Jerusalem, Paul, socially speaking, because he was born a citizen, is technically higher in social rank, at least, than uh, Claudius Lysias himself is. Therefore, verse 29, those who were about to interrogate him immediately backed away from him. Like, we don't want to be associated with this action. We actually almost flogged a Roman citizen, somebody who was born a citizen. So they back away, visibly disturbed by what they almost did. And the commander also was afraid when he found out he was a Roman because he had put him in chains and he knew um, that there could be serious repercussions for him, uh, serious penalties for him for having done that. So at that point, they unbind Paul and they, okay, that didn't work. And remember, the commander still doesn't know what, what the problem is. Why are the Jews so angry at him? But they can't beat him and... You know, they can't put him in chains. He hasn't been through proper trial. So he needs to figure out what in the world's going on. And so the last verse of chapter 22 is the setup for what's going to happen next. And so we'll read it here, but just know it really sets the context for the next chapter and what happens the following day. So verse 30, now on the next day, wanting to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews... He released him, that is, the commander released Paul, and ordered the chief priests and the council to assemble, and he brought Paul down and placed him before them. And so the Roman commander calls for the Jewish Sanhedrin to gather, probably because he ordered it may not be an official meeting, right? Like, who knows? We'll see how that might play out and what follows. But he orders for the the Jewish ruling body to gather and he takes Paul down and he's hoping just to figure out why is this man so hated and why is so much hostility directed to him. Now, what follows from here over the next several chapters of the book of Acts is kind of the ramifications of this, the fallout from this. Paul's been seized. The commander doesn't know what's going on. We'll see in the next chapter that Paul you know, is brought before the Jewish authorities. That ends again with the commander still being confused and hostility being directed towards Saul. And one thing after another is just going to kind of spiral out of control from this moment uh, over the course of the next several chapters. It's eventually going to lead to Paul sitting for a couple years in Roman confinement in the city of Caesarea. So, spoiler alert, that's where we're going over the next couple chapters. And we'll kind of look at that story, and I think there's one big overarching theme, really, for that whole story uh, over the next couple chapters. But this particular story, before we leave it, let me just offer this this little kind of wrap-up and observation. And it's this, that what we see here is that Paul is really a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Paul's a prisoner because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Um, It's the Jews from Asia seeing Paul in the temple and disliking him and stirring up hostility. It's the Jews from Asia seeing Trophimus, the Ephesian, a Gentile, with Paul in the city. It's Paul being in Jerusalem with a bunch of Gentile believers bringing an offering to the Jewish believers. It's Paul's ministry to the the Gentiles very practically and tangibly that has led to this moment. 
And then when you listen to his speech there, his testimony, it's him recalling the words of Jesus, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, that leads them to erupt in hostility again. And so it's Paul's ministry to the Gentiles that leads to him being seized in the temple, to him being under Roman guard, and that's going to lead to everything that's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. And in fact, when Paul writes letters from his Roman imprisonment, which is where Acts will end, that is the final culmination of all of this, Paul describes himself this way. For example, in Ephesians, he says, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. This is the way Paul viewed his imprisonment, and that imprisonment starts with this moment here in the Jerusalem temple. And so Paul's a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles um, for his ministry to them, for his conviction that God wants to uh, form this, this kingdom of people from every nation and language and tribe and tongue. Paul being the one who is the initial spearhead for all of this multi-ethnic kingdom of God is imprisoned because of that. And it illustrates for us how central and how important this ministry is. Paul believed it so deeply that he gave his life to reaching people far from God, from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, people whom he would have had the same hostility for until he met Jesus. And now he's sharing with them the good news of Jesus, and he's working on Jesus' behalf for their sake to bring them into the kingdom of God. Paul's example in this regard is powerful for us to remind us that God is calling us as his people to testify to people of all different backgrounds that there is one creator God. Uh, he has sent his son in the person of Jesus, and now he's calling all people everywhere to come into his kingdom.